Well, again, good morning. Um, my name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And in 1998, my wife Angie and I moved here to Seattle, and we started uh, working at the University of Washington. I was a campus pastor there, and we joined this church. Um, and right away, we got invited to be in a core group, which if you haven't done, you should. They're awesome. Um, there are small group uh, gatherings. Um, and the core group was led by Dave and Shalee Stearns, and they were, and still are, super hip, super cool. They're into jazz and cool sci-fi stuff and uh, world travelers, lived in Scotland, right? All this cool stuff. Um, and have been uh, dear friends and, and a blessing to Angie and I for all that time in more ways than, than that I could count. And they are uh, two of the best, most faithful people I've ever met in my life. And so it's a huge honor for us to be able to have Shalee here today. She's going uh, she's gonna to preach. She is a professor at Seattle School of, of Psychology and Theology. Theology and Psychology? <laughs> in my mind, it's always uh, SSTP, right? I just, STP, right? I don't know why, so I never say the name. Uh, but she's a professor of theology there, and so will you please welcome her this morning to preach? Thank you, Greg. Am I on? Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. Kind of like to look around the room a little bit. Some, some of you I know, others I don't. You know, those that I know, I mean, it's like, nice to see you, <laughs> Mr. Merklinghouse. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I look at this room and I realize that there are just a lot of people here that we have loved a lot over the years. And it's, so it's fun to see those faces. And for those of you that I don't know, I love you too. Um, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, I, Dave and I went here for a long time back in the 90s. And we left about 2001 when we went off to do our PhDs. Um, it sounds more glamorous than it actually is. Um, uh, it's a long road, but somehow we made it back to Seattle, and it's fun to come back to one life. I want to say Calvary Chapel every once in a while, but it's good to be back. And when Greg asked me to preach today, I thought, let's see, are my slides up? Maybe not. We'll see. Slides? Okay. Aha. Uh -huh. It just doesn't show up on my thing. Cool. So when Greg asked me to preach today, I didn't actually pay attention to the passage that he wanted me to preach on. Um, and I didn't realize that you were in the middle of a sermon series. And there's nothing like just coming in when you're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's pretty intimidating, and I really don't know where you've been, and so let's just see what happens this morning, you know, because it's, it's daunting to come in because this is one of the sermons that Jesus gives, and it's iconic. It's the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, he's preaching this iconic sermon, and we wonder, well, who is blessed? Who is chosen? Who is loved? Who is important? Who is actually seen by God? We want to know. But then he says things like, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted. What kind of club is this? 
Do I really want to be in this club? Like, why would I want to be a Christian in this sort of way? But here we are. Let's see if this actually... Nope. No slides. Okay. Do, 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 do. Well, we'll see what happens. Aha! So here's the passage for today. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, who really wants to hear this message? When I saw that it was about persecution, I thought, well, how do you preach on this? What is the actual good news here? Like, what do we want to hear? Well, theologians might talk about the Beatitudes in general as Jesus' prolegomena. I love the word prolegomena because it's, it's the pro-lego, legos, really. But it's the what you say, it's the words you say before you say the words you're going to say. It's all the stuff that you kind of prepare for. It's the things that you're going to, you say, this is what I need you to know before we can ever really get started. And what I find in this passage, in all of the Beatitudes, is that Jesus is setting the stage for his entire ministry. He's saying to us in many different ways, the world as we know it doesn't really conform to how God really wanted things to go. The reality of how God created this world hasn't really gone the way God really purposes it to go. And so what do we do now with this world that we have? How do we live today in the midst of all that we know? And we tend to kind of think, well, how in the world do we even live up to these statements? Because they seem really high, they seem like they're impossible, and we can just think, well, let's just kind of dismiss this, or I'm not quite sure what to do really. On the other hand, we tend to get too used to it, and then the words don't actually startle us. And these are startling words. These are words that should stir our hearts. These are words that should make us consider whether we really want to be Christians or not, because the Jesus way demands a lot of us. But we're not alone. But that I'll talk about that later in the sermon. So in this short passage, Jesus is reminding us that the shape of our world, our various cultures, does not always reflect what the world could be or should be. And what is at stake here is the very nature and essence of the world that God created on on our behalf. He does want to shake us up, readjust our expectations for how we live and view the world. So I think this sermon is Jesus at his subversive best. He lures us in with talk of blessing and the promise of love and a place in the kingdom of heaven. But what is he really trying to tell us? Within the whole of this sermon, Jesus deconstructs and undercuts assumed notions of religiosity and spirituality. So we should know that every word that he says is in some ways trying to reconceive the world. And the Jesus way is the oldest way in the universe, yet it feels new and radical even now, and we should wonder about that. Why is it that if Jesus, the one who created all things and actually purposed all things, why should it be that the Jesus way seems so strange or so foreign to us? Nope. 
I'm just going to keep looking back. No, I'm going to actually stop. So Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. I'm going to say that again. Ooh, that's, that's up right now. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that again. So all, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. So his message is faithful. His message is the truth of the universe. And so it's this question of, well, what is he really trying to tell us today? And there's beauty in these words And when I say beauty, I mean beauty as in the thing that actually calls us, that deep desire within us to see the world be set right. That beauty that that says, you are beloved and chosen of God. That is what Jesus says. And more than anything, this message is not so much about what you should do, but the question is, to whom do you belong? What is the relationship? What is the love that actually defines your life? This is the question that Jesus is trying to ask. So whose are we? That is the central question here. Because if we know to whom we belong, that love, that relationship will transform us. It will shape us. It will fill us with life and life abundantly. So what is at stake here is the very nature of what we view as real in our lives. Where are the voices, or what are the voices that we actually listen to? Do we care about our waistline more than we care about righteousness? Do we care about the way our hair looks on a particular morning more than actually being kind and generous in the world? What are the things that we actually listen to? Augustine once pondered, what we, we are what we love. Now, I might change that just a little bit here to we are radically formed by the faces that we encounter. This is why we come to church. We are radically changed by the way we are seen in the world, by the kind of attunement. This is the way psychologists might say it. You know, the way we are attuned to in the world. And this is this question of what voices are we actually listening to? And here, in this passage, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, happy is this person, blessed are these people. And he's coming close to us and looking at us face to face and saying, you are beloved, you are the ones for whom I have come to love. So in in many ways, this passage is introducing us to this is the kind of Jesus. This is the Jesus that has come for us. So theologian Hansers von Balthasar refers to the encounter with Jesus as our initiation into love. When we really see and encounter Jesus, we see the fullness and the depth of God's love for us and for the world. Though we cannot love exactly like Jesus, we are initiated into this way of love, and our capacity to love grows as we encounter Jesus. We are actually gifted the capacity to grow in God's love through our encounter. We don't do this on our own. And I believe that this is what Paul is talking about when he admonishes us to be people of the Spirit. And this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being 
transformed into the same image. Again, here's like one of those passages that we call, yeah, yeah, Ashley, that's great, great. You know, like, yeah, we're being transformed, thank you very much, and we have brunch plans, so can you hurry it up just a little bit? Um, but the reality is like, hear the radicalness of this is the work of the Spirit, that you today, in our small little way, are being transformed by the Spirit within you. This is the work that Christ has done. So all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. I think that all of the Beatitudes come down to this. If the love of God comes into your life, pierces your heart, then the work of the Spirit in your life will be that you will become more and more like Jesus. You become the face of Jesus in the world. And the great paradox here is that we are given our true selves in this encounter. We don't become nothing. We don't abnegate ourselves. We actually find our true selves. We set our false selves aside, and we actually find a fullness of life. This is not a zero-sum game. This is actually life, the gift of life. But all of this talk of faces and love and transformation complicates the story just a little bit because love is not assumed in our lives. Not everyone has been loved well in this life. But we each require, like, do you know this? That you will never learn how to eat if your mother doesn't hold you. Your brain cannot learn language unless you are touched and held by somebody. And so all of us are, like, geared to this life of, being held, being known, being seen face to face. We are hardwired to be these kinds of people. But if there's one thing that we know about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus reminds us not everyone has loved well. Not all of us have been loved well. So how do we hear these words? How do we really just don't go say, these are just abstract notions, thank you Jesus for your words, and I'm just going to go on with my life. Question is, how do we really allow these words to sink into our hearts and know that Jesus, the Spirit, the Father are for us here today, even in our darkest, most shame-filled places? So if Jesus' way is the way of love and righteousness, then why does it seem so hard or have it cost so much for us? And with that, let's turn to the meaning of righteousness. If people in this passage are persecuted for righteousness, then we should know what that means. Let's go to the next slide. At the beginning of one of my classes where I teach on spirit and trauma or theology and trauma studies, okay, I teach on trauma a lot and I can't help myself but talk about trauma, so we're gonna talk about trauma just a little bit. But I love to start with this passage because it tells us something about that we're not alone in the work of actually healing people, that transformation happens on many different levels of our lives, that we're not just kind of stuck and alone. And so this passage in Daniel 12:3 says, men and women who have lived wisely and well will shine brilliantly like the cloudless star-strewn night sky, and those who put others on the right path to life will glow like stars forever. In the Hebrew, the word for those who put others on the right path to life is the, the, the um, 
radical, three radical root is tzaddik, to be just or to be righteous. And I've really wrestled with this, this particular passage because it's not just righteousness. This is people who actually make righteousness happen. People who actually go and work with people and help righteousness happen in their life. Where there is not righteousness, where there is not justice, these are people who actually go out and do and make right. And I love that image of making right, making righteous. Where there is darkness, where there is sorrow, where there is pain, these are the people that go in and say, no, reality is actually a little bit different. Um, I was recently um, on a recovery week uh, with the Allender Center, and the whole week was working with people who have been sexually abused. And I was really struck by how hard it is for people who have childhood trauma, who have childhood abuse, to actually hear the words, you really are loved. You, the shame you feel has been put upon you and this is, does not belong to you. And I, just, I was just really struck throughout the whole week of how hard it was to stay on that righteous path to say, no, 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 there's something more for you. There's actually love for you. In those places that you think there's no way that you can be transformed, or there's no way that your shame can ever go away, that's actually where the Holy Spirit is working hardest in their life. And this question of bearing witness to that and actually being face-to-face with someone and saying, no, that's not true. So that's righteousness. Now, when we talk about righteous, I, I, I should also say that this is not an excuse. Maybe this is my, my fundy background a little bit. Um, it's not an excuse to actually tell somebody or nag somebody that you're not doing what I want you to do. That's actually called self-righteousness. Um, and so when you hear me talk about righteousness, I hope you really kind of hear that it's not self-oriented it's actually very much oriented toward the good. You've all met people like this, I take it? Yeah, okay. So studying trauma theory has complicated my categories. I find that the body and the brain, can we go to the next slide? Ah, okay, there we go. Trauma. Um, What I find when I come to categories around trauma And this is why when you work with people, you find that they don't actually believe you because what begins to happen in the brain when you experience trauma or you have some sort of traumatic experience is that the the language centers of your brain actually shut down. Did you know that? Yeah, everyone should know this, which means that where your memory is stored actually isn't connected to any kind of language, it's not connected to rationality, It's usually connected to our emotional memory, and it's connected very much to our visual memory. So when something else happens, when we're triggered triggered in a place that it feels a little bit like all of a sudden that thing is happening again. And this is what's called a false negative, like that happens. And though it's not real, it's real. And so when you start to talk about What does it mean to be a person who makes justice in the world? And the alarm bells are sounding, the amygdala is going off in the brain and saying, you're in danger, you're in danger, when you're actually not in danger. This is where you begin to go, how do you make right 
what seems to have gone so wrong in our bodies and in our brains. But I think this is the good work of the righteous. We set these things right. So how many teachers do we have in here? There's usually lots of teachers. Yay for the teachers. How many nurses? How many? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other helping professions? Yeah. This is a church that usually has a lot of helping professions. My guess, if you were to all stand up one by one, you could tell stories of how this you've experienced this. This is what happens in the classroom. This is what happens in hospitals all the time. And all of a sudden, you don't know what's happening. So what do you do? So we were recently talking to one of our friends who is a teacher in New Orleans. And Katrina is ever-present in New Orleans. And she's working with five-year-olds. And so you think, oh, they're just sweet five-year-olds. But already they've taken on the trauma of the city and the trauma of, of, their, of their parents' bodies and all the rest of it. And what really struck me was when she talked about, you know, you do these kind of stranger danger things or there's like a fire alarm and they have to go out. What she was saying was it's really hard to get students to go back into the building because they think, the building's gonna burn down, or someone's gonna come and hurt us. We've had an alarm, and now their brains are going, nope, I'm sorry, danger is here. And I think, in a world where we want education to happen, how in the world does someone go back in the classroom and learn math, when they feel like there's so much danger in the world? And so when I see people who are in helping professions, this is like enacting righteousness on a daily basis, that kind of small work that you do daily, student to student, when you're trying to say, no, actually, this is the reality of the world, and trying to set them in that you're not always in danger. Actually, I can be a presence and bear witness to your life and lead you on a better way. This is good stuff. So when I think about that, I think, can we go to the next slide? You know, this is where, like, the fruits of the Spirit You know, not only, so righteousness is really accompanied by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That righteousness is the long path. Righteousness is the dailiness of everything that we do. Even when we think that we're not working on righteousness, we actually are, especially when we're working with other people. So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is alerting us to the reality that the one who is devoted to this sort of righteousness is hitting up against deeply embedded ways of being in the world. Righteousness hits up against powers, systems, defenses, trauma, storms, abuse, shame, that righteousness says no to these things. It does not give up because the taste of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God lingers long in our senses, and this is what we have to practice as the people of God. We have to practice this presence of the kingdom of heaven, that we might actually experience the aroma of this kingdom in our day-to-day lives. And Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us that the arc of the universe bends towards justice or bends towards righteousness, toward the kingdom of God or what we might call the shalom of God, this kind of bringing right, this kind of putting right to things. And then I have to introduce you to one of my favorite theologians, uh, African theologian Mercy Amba Odeoye. So she shifts the language of kingdom to the household of God. And I love this language of because we are co-heirs with Christ. We have been introduced to a new household, and this household actually has new 
rules. This is actually what the reality is. This is the house that Jesus has been building from the very beginning, and it's this household to which we belong. And so the shalom of God is working to set all things right. All oppression, death, and tears will end. And she argues it this way. Hope springs out of the belief that what is is not what must necessarily remain. So hope springs out of the belief that what is is not what must necessarily remain. And it is certain to change if it does not conform to God's future or shalom. They, the random theologians, point out, though we are created in the image of God, we are still in process of becoming who we are. Hence, and here we are, this is this language of making righteousness. Hence, the action to transform what does not contribute to the ambience of the household of God. So the process of the Holy Spirit is actually moving us in this direction of changing us so that we can live fully within the rules of the household of God. And this household has a beautiful ambiance, has a beautiful fragrance. So beauty, truth, goodness like this transforms. It confronts, it loves, it rehumanizes the world one person at a time, one child at a time. So the household of God is very small and personal, and it is big enough to hold all of our reality. But when we turn to persecution, yay, um, we experience a very different ambiance. We experience very different rules. This is a very different household. This is a reality counter to the rules of the house of God, a deliberate attack on the Ark of Shalom. Persecution is intent. It is purposeful. The aim of persecution is to cut away at the very root of one's identity and faith, and persecution terrorizes. In his book, Silence and Beauty, Makoto Fujimura points out the Japanese Christianity is haunted by persecution. Can we see the next? There he is. Hi, Mako. Um, and I, I love the way he talks about Japanese Christianity. So he's a Ameri- Japanese-American man who actually studied in Japan, and that's where he became a Christian. And so he has really found that his own faith has been more formed by Japanese faith than from American faith. And we're going to talk just a little bit about what that looks like in just a second. Can we go to the next slide as well? I love this image, and it is purposefully just a little bit kind of shadowy. This is an image that he used right after 9-11. He was living, he and his family was living at Ground Zero on 9-11 in New York, and they kind of had this harrowing experience because his kids were like going one direction, he and his wife were going another direction, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And he says he actually made this lithograph the next day. We go to the next slide. And he says this, that instead of being terrorized, he says, create, we must, and respond to this dark hour. The world needs artists who dedicate themselves to communicate the images of shalom. Jesus is the shalom. Shalom is not just the absence of war, but wholeness, healing, and joy of fullness of humanity. We need to collaborate within our communities to respond individually to give to the world our shalom vision. 
And so this is a lot of what he's talking about, that there's a resilience to Japanese Christianity, and there's kind of a reason why. So I want to talk about that just a little bit. So at the end of the 16th and 17th century, there was a purposeful and premeditated persecution of Japanese Christians, which eventually led to the closing of Japan for two centuries. And what's really shocking about this story is that when the, when the Jesuit missionaries came in to Japan in, was it, 1590, no, yeah, 1549, um, that, you know, it was like, it was miraculous. They started preaching and hundreds of thousands of people became Christians. I mean, this is like one of those great missionary feats, right? That you have hundreds and thousands of people. I mean, it feels a little bit like Pentecost. You know, the, the word is preached and people kind of come. But by 1597, the tides turned and there was a purposeful terrorizing of Christians. And by 1650, 1614, there was actually an edict to just destroy all Christianity in Japan and then to close the borders of Japan. Fujimura says it this way, the depth of cruelty, the refined design of torture techniques, and the prolonged suffering of the faithful rival any time in history, including the early church. The depth of evil, what can only be described as genius for innovative torture techniques, that equaled or even surpassed any modern torture methods, led many Japanese Christians, even the greatest of priests, to recant their faith. And, and he points out that despite the terrorizing, that two centuries later, they found what they were calling hidden Christians who had developed their own language and their own kind of artifacts because they couldn't have Bibles. And so they had memorized scripture and they'd memorized their liturgy and they passed it down from generation to generation. And he's like, there's a resilience here. There's still a haunting here, but there's a resilience. And it's this kind of question of, well, what does it look like to make righteousness in this place? So if that's Japanese Christianity, American Christianity tends to want the good news. We love books by, John, by Don Richardson. I grew up with stories about Jim Elliott, that though he died, that it opened up a new place for evangelization, that we want to know if suffering happens or if death happens, if persecution happens, that God's going to purpose something on the other side of it. We need to know that. The problem with that is we become too triumphalistic in the way we understand what persecution is or, or what suffering is. And as someone who teaches, I should probably be careful, I know I have some students here. Um, I find with my students that they don't do well with suffering. Um, that when big suffering happens, that there's kind of this feeling of, well, God should have protected me in this. And I'm, I'm not sure how we think about the faithfulness of God. Because in this passage, Jesus is saying <clears throat> that if you are in this way of righteousness, it's probably, you're probably going to be persecuted on one level or another. Something's probably going to happen. This is, and it's this question of, what does it mean to not have so much of a triumphalistic faith, but to have something of, Yes, when the hard times come, and Jesus is telling us from the very, very beginning that they will, what does it mean for me to not lose sight of doing the good? What does it mean for me to not lose sight 
of the faithfulness of God even in this moment. And this is a lot what Fujimura is trying to do in his book, Silence and Beauty, is to say that the silence of God is not a not faithfulness of God. The silence of God is the lingering presence of God, even though persecution may haunt this form of Christianity. There's a kind of resilient spirituality in Japan that is distinct from American Christianity. And Fujimura argues that Japanese faith is defined by what he calls hiddenness. There's a lot more ambiguity. And there's beauty. But beauty is not defined by success. It's not, it's not um, Hollywood beauty. It's actually defined by death and suffering, by weakness and vulnerability. These are not things we as Americans really like. Well, maybe you guys do. I just, just, um. But what Fujimura points out in his book is that because of this, our faults are not the place where we are most fragile. Where we encounter unrighteousness and evil, that's where we find the fragility. But God meets us in our failures, and God meets us in our own weaknesses. And this is where the Holy Spirit can actually open our heart to love more and more. We have more capacity in these places because God meets us in this place. Which brings us back to Jesus. Because it's always about Jesus, right? I, was, I have a joke with my students. My husband's always like, Dave's like, don't tell this joke. It's not funny. Um, <laughs> But I think it's hilarious, you know. And kid is in a Sunday school class, and it's like, you know, because the answer is always Jesus. And it's like, well, it looks like a squirrel and acts like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. Funny, right? <laughs> Dave's like, see, it's not funny. Um, so when we get back to, can we go to the, when we get back to this Matthew 5 passage, of blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If these were just words from a teacher, a wise saying, I think that in some ways we could maybe dismiss it and say, maybe I don't really want to go in this way. But I think the promise goes deeper here because Jesus is the persecuted one. Jesus is the one who is blessed. Jesus is the one who has actually secured the kingdom of heaven for us. He's given us the household of God. And he goes even farther than that. We are co-heirs. We have been adopted in, but we are not second-class citizens in the household of God. We are actually co-heirs with Christ, which means everything that Jesus has, we have been given. And so, in a lot of ways, I kind of go back to this idea that that Paul says, we are hidden in Christ. Not because we're abnegated or we're lesser beings. Actually, we are given everything that Jesus has. And this is an amazing promise. So if Jesus is ultimately the one who is persecuted and has secured the, the, the kingdom of heaven for us, this is good news. So I want to do one more scripture passage because it's one of my favorite. Um, so for those who are led by the Spirit of God, are the children of God, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And sonship just means that you, you are fully the heir of this household. 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So my last invitation for you today is to really think about what is the invitation in your own heart? If there were times when you felt like I don't know what to do with the shame that's in my heart. This is an invitation for you to feel seen and loved and cared for in that place. If you feel like wherever the the stirring happened where you're like, yes, I, I know that me being a teacher is the very thing that God wants me to do, then be encouraged that that's where the Spirit will be filling you and actually encouraging you, that the fruit of the Spirit is actually being gifted to you day to day. This way-making, this making of righteousness in the world happens in very unexpected places. And so the invitation that Jesus says is, come and join me. I've gone before you. I've already set out the way. And the Spirit says, come. This way is not too hard for you. So blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen. Can we pray really quickly at the end? And I know the worship team will subtly come up in the midst of that. So let's pray. Lord, I invite your spirit to be here in all the ways that this idea of righteousness hits our, hits our bodies, hits our minds, um, hits our vocation, It's the way we think about using our free time. Lord, I just pray that you be with our hearts, be with our minds, really transform us into your likeness in the midst of this crazy, unpredictable world. In the name of Christ, amen.